focus. Help us to honor the scriptures tonight, to read them clearly and faithfully and obediently. Help us to make sense of this topic and apply it faithfully in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, before we dive into that, announcements-wise, we've got several things coming up soon. So Sunday, we'll honor graduating seniors. Um, that won't be a big part of the service, but we, we will recognize them and give them a few books. I always got really excited when people gave us books when I was graduating. And these aren't bad books. These are like legitimately worth reading sort of books. So excited about that. Um, the second, no, 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 sorry, that's this Sunday. The Sunday after that, which is the 26th, I believe, is Signature Dish Potluck. That's the fancy way of saying you cook something that you're known for cooking that people like. Oh, now, if you have a dish that you're known for that no one that eats, that's not the one we're talking about. That's all I got. Um, <laughs> if, if you've I'll got so no much. signature dish whatsoever, I like the spicy chicken bucket from KFC. <laughs> that would be a good option. We'll call it the bucket of shame, but it is better than nothing. Okay. So signature dish potluck. Um, I think we have a sign-up sheet, actually, out there in the foyer. So uh, look at that. So if two people share the same signature dish... We're going to end up having a competition, so you might want to not do that. So, or maybe you do want to do that. I don't know. It depends on depends on what's going on for you. So, um, so that's not Sunday. That's the next one. So Sunday, I call that Sunday week. I don't know what everybody else calls that, but a week from Sunday, and then the second Sunday, which is two weeks after the potluck, we're going to have a men's breakfast, and. Uh, even though I wanted pancakes, apparently we're doing biscuits with gravy and bacon, I think. So it's not breakfast without bacon. It's not, yeah, it's not breakfast. I do agree with that. Well, some kind of pig. So <laughs> some kind of pig has to be present. We're not Jewish. So that's the ninth. That'll be at nine o'clock a.m. Before service, we'll men will get together. We'll have breakfast. We'll pray for our church, and then otherwise, that Sunday morning will be completely like normal. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head, those three things. Any other announcements I'm missing? Anything? We just gave them Compassion Sunday, but I'm not sure. That's, that's this Sunday. We're doing it this Sunday. <laughs> okay. We're going to do show the video this Sunday. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, and those are extra study guides if anybody else needs one. Anybody else? So we're here. Oh, I can, I can interrupt. It would take me a second to get there. One second. That's multiples. There you go. Yeah, there you go, Rob. There's two of them. All right. <coughs> Anybody else? All right. Well, let's do it then. So this is the last part of our basics series. And for our basics series, we have been reviewing some basic Bible doctrines, and we've been reviewing them in the form of our doctrinal statement as a church. So the first category we went through was what we call foundational beliefs. So these are the things that really, to call yourself Christian, we really need to agree on all of these points. Now we could get into some nuances within these, but the base ideas in these first four, um, there's really no room for disagreement. This is what Christianity is. So we talked about creational monotheism, which was our big word for saying there's one God who is creator, who exists as Trinity. We talked about the historical gospel event, so you have to believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, which of course assumes he came, he incarnated, and 
went back to heaven afterwards. And we talked about the five solas. Can anybody give me those five? Five alones. Grace alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. Scripture. Scripture alone. To the glory of God alone. Very good. So that's the doctrine of salvation. And then anybody remember the last topic we covered? The least taught among the most important things. Resurrection. And by resurrection, we're not actually talking primarily about the resurrection of Christ. We're talking about the future resurrection of the dead, which is a core tenet of Christianity. It's in all of the early creeds, and uh, that's a core tenet. Then after that, we move to identifying beliefs. So these are the things that you can disagree with. You're still a Christian. But we at this church, we operate under these particular doctrinal positions. Every church, even if they call themselves non-denominational, you have to take a stand on how you do certain things or, or you're not doing anything. So if you're doing something, something's defining what you do. This is that category for us, identifying beliefs. First, we talked about the sacraments, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we baptize fully in water by immersion. Um, then we talked about congregational polity. Anybody remember the main idea oh there? Congregational policy. We are independent. Independent. We govern ourselves. So no outside body governs this church. And then we talk about non-charismatic worship. So our goal is to make much of Jesus. And if spiritual gifts help us do that, that's great. But we're not here to make much of spiritual gifts. That's a different paradigm. And then we talk about missional outreach strategy. What was the main idea in missional outreach strategy last week? Discipleship, what's the key idea? You were all supposed to do it. All of us are supposed to be disciple makers. The church doesn't make disciples. Disciples make disciples. The church helps you make disciples. That is a fundamental disagreement with a bunch of church history. So a lot of churches do operate this way, or at least they say they do. And uh, that's our formal strategy. Now we are talking about, I'm putting the last two topics um, in one heading because they all relate together. Traditional marriage and male headship and the church and family. So out of all of these topics, these are probably the most hotly debated currently among evangelical Christians. And so we're going to walk through that tonight. And uh, I would say it will wait till get controversial at the end, but the fact of the matter is in this culture, this is pretty much going to have some controversial content from the beginning to the end. I suspect in this room there's less controversy at the beginning and maybe more towards the end, but we'll just see. I have no idea. But to remind you, we're not talking about things that determine whether or not you are a Christian, but we are talking about things that are non-negotiables for our church. That makes sense, the difference. So I can disagree with a brother or sister in Christ on this topic, but we're not going to change the way we do things here based on that disagreement. Is that All right, so that, that's what's going on. So we're talking about marriage and family. So grab your outline. We're going to just fill in a few blanks and then look at some scriptures more in depth as we go. So first category, what is marriage according to the Bible? So we're just going to go over some basic, very um, specific, concrete sort of information here. We're not talking about how to have a good, healthy marriage. It's a different conversation. Here we're defining it. What does that mean biblically? Number one, This is fundamental for us. We've got to start here, or we can't even have the conversation if we don't agree at this point. 
Um, blank created marriage. Gosh, very good. What did you say, Jesus? He's laughing really hard. Since Jesus is God, Scott, I'm going to let that answer slide. God created marriage, and of course, we'll look at it in a minute, but of course, where does that happen in your Bible? In the garden. So literally, you could say it happened in chapter 1, but formally it happens in Genesis chapter 2. So we'll, we'll look at that in a few minutes. Right, consistently throughout Scripture, Adam and Eve um, are presented as the primary example of God's design for marriage. We'll see this. I listed several scriptures there, and we'll actually go look at those scriptures for other reasons um, multiple times tonight. But you'll see very, if the Bible's talking about marriage and it wants to back it up, make a point, even Jesus or Paul, if they want to kind of reinforce the point, they go back and refer to Adam and Eve. This is the common paradigm of the, of the New Testament, and it is the basis in the Old Testament. So this is the Bible's primary example for how marriage should look. So in other words, we look at Adam and Eve and say, that's what marriage was supposed to be. Does that make sense? That is the Bible's definition. Furthermore, the creation of Eve, which is the Genesis 2 story, is presented as the original marriage in the Genesis story. That's how it's presented. So it's not just a matter of, we look at it and retrospectively, um, retrospectively, this is where marriage began, but the, the presentation of that story in Genesis chapter 2 is, this is where marriage came from. That's why that story is told in the first place. It's not just told because, hey, it, it was happened, so it got written down. Well, there's a lot of things that happened that didn't get written down. This was recorded specifically to answer the question, where did marriage come from? So we're not out of line to make this an example. It's designed to be. So I just want you to see that, um, how this is written in Genesis chapter 2. So grab your Bible. Let's look at that passage. Genesis chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 18. This is a story, and um, it all comes together, but I want to I focus on the end. So God's basically let Adam look at all the creatures of the earth and name them. Uh, or that's what's, what's going to be happening here. So look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good th that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground of the Lord, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become 
one flesh. Do you see the therefore? This story has a therefore. We were told the story to reinforce the principle of marriage. Point being, Adam and Eve are the biblical definition for what marriage should be. We'll see this consistently throughout the Bible. It's important that we look at that. All right, next. Marriage is a covenant union. Now, what's a covenant? Agreement? It's related. It is technically an agreement. Um, contract. Technically, it is a testament, but we don't use it. I feel like that's even less. We never use that word. A vow? Oh, I'd say vow. <laughs> well, well, what's a vow? It's a binding. Promise? Yeah, there's certainly a promise aspect to it. Um, what else would you say? You feel like we've got it? Well, there's typically uh, something at stake. In the- <laughs> Ooh, something at stake. You know, like God makes a covenant. Terms. Oh, yeah, excellent. But technically, it's not a covenant if there's not terms. All right, so we wouldn't call just a casual friendship a covenant because there's, there's no terms at stake. Now, if it's a good enough relationship that there's terms, now we're getting into different territory. All right, but what are the terms then in a marriage relationship? Exclusivity. What else? Singular devotion. Singular devotion. Those are good terms. Exclusivity and singular devotion. Till death. Till death. If we were to define covenant, uh, covenant, the simplest definition I've ever heard is a uh, a bind or bond in blood. And that idea was just that. This bond has specific terms, and if those terms are not met, typically speaking, there was bloodshed. So think about it in the Old Testament. You got caught breaking this bond in the form of not being exclusive. Uh, what could happen to you? There's literal blood involved. All right, that would be the idea. So when God makes a covenant with his people, there's always blood involved. No covenant can even be ratified without the shedding of blood. We read in Hebrews... Marriage is called a covenant relationship. Um, the best, clearest example of this is in Malachi, which is referenced there. It's just talking about how you are in um, the, the companion that you have by covenant. If you go look at Malachi 2.14, you will see that. So marriage is a covenant union. It's not just a social contract. It's not a tax write-off strategy. It is a before God, between two people, towards your community, an exclusive binding relationship. That you don't just say, hey, we're covenant relationship today, and tomorrow we're not. That's not how covenants work. That's not the concept of a covenant biblically. This is a lifelong sort of thing. So, as modeled by Adam and Eve, let's just furthermore say these two things. Marriage is between, who can guess? One man man and one woman. And so we're looking at Adam and Eve. 
And that's exactly what that is, right? God made one man, and how many women did God make for that man? Just the one. You have Adam and the woman, Adam and Eve, the mother of the living. Further, marriage is a lifelong covenant. Lifelong, co- I guess covenant was two blanks. Marriage is a lifelong covenant. Of course, the Malachi 2.15 is talking about divorce, how God hates divorce. Matthew 19.6, let's look at that one. Matthew 19.6. Jesus' view on divorce. It's very simple. The Pharisees come and ask him a question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? What's he referencing to answer the question? Back to, back to the beginning, Adam and Eve specifically. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That was the ending of that story, Genesis 2.24. says, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what's the biblical general view on divorce? Don't. That's the basic view on divorce. But flip over... Um, two pages, well maybe, for me it was three pages, Matthew 22, um, verse 30, you probably know the story, the Sadducees come to Jesus, ask him a question, and say, so you got this dude, married to this woman, they get married, do married stuff, don't produce children, the husband dies, then the brother comes, marries the woman, same thing, no children, he dies, third brother, fourth brother, fifth brother, sixth brother, seventh brother, all marry this one woman. Officially, no children, he dies. Then she dies. Then the question is, in heaven, Jesus, of those seven men, whose wife is she going to be? You say the first. That's almost always the answer I get. I ask this question. I figured none. Never mind. No one. That's the answer. Verse 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There's no marriage on the other side. She's not married to any of them. And honestly, they're, she's probably saying, thank God. And uh, they may be saying that as well. Marriage, we say this in our vow, until death do us part. And then it's explicitly stated in Romans 7.2. Uh, good conversation here. He's using marriage as an illustration of something else. But uh, Romans, what did I say, 7, 7, 2, says, For a married woman is bound by law to her, to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Marriage is over when one's dead. You're not married anymore. That has ended. And so it is a lifelong covenant that goes from the altar to the grave it's supposed to be permanent during that window, but it's absolutely gone afterwards. That's the time frame for marriage. Now, we, of course, love love songs and hanging out together in the afterlife, and it's just not like that, guys. That's not the biblical worldview. It's temporary. It's, it's permanent within that temporal window. Does that make sense? So it is 
a lifelong covenant. Now flip over to Hebrews chapter 13. There'll be lots of turning tonight. Well, they are having a good time somewhere. All right, Hebrews 13, 4. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, the marriage bed, you don't have to be real explicit, but what's that talking about? Talking, you, okay, we all know what it's talking about, right? We don't have to go further. Are you trying to answer, Scott, or are you just... Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> all right, so, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I want you to see in here that the biblical definition of sexually immoral... Sexually immoral is kind of a... Um, I'm going to say sexual sin. That's the Bible's catch-all term. So if it's sin and it has any sexual nature, that's the word that gets used. Here's the Bible's definition for that. Here's what counts. Let the marriage bed be held in honor. So what would you make the definition? Anything outside of that. Anything not in that circle. Period follow that so I love to ask this question with, with guys um, especially with uh, teenagers when I was a youth pastor I got this question all the time how far can I go before it's sin you know what I mean right how far can I go before it's sin what would you say when you start thinking about it yeah that particular time think about it towards that end it's wrong that's it? Not even a hint. Not even a hint. What about holding hands? No. <laughs> Not a hint. Goodness, so Kissing? Said the man with daughters. Very, <laughs> very, very good. <laughs> well, let me ask the exact same question from another perspective. All right. So now I have a husband and wife come to me for counseling. And the husband, sitting there with his wife, wants to know how far he can go with that girl at work before it's considered sin. He's pretty bold if he's asking that in counseling. <laughs> he's too far gone already, right? You know, can he hold her hand? Can he entertain the conversation? Can he put his hand on her knee at work? No. Why not? Because he's married, right? The definition of sexual immorality is the marriage covenant. You can't do anything in any way with anyone that you're not married to, period. That's the Bible's definition. If it's not that circle, the answer's no. It's sin. Don't do it. So marriage is, what I'm saying is sexual sin is defined by being anti-marriage. If it's not in the marriage covenant, that's what makes it wrong. So the biblical definition of sexual morality is based on the holiness of marriage. <clears throat> holiness of marriage. Any questions on just that definition of marriage we've worked through so far? Good. All right, so now let's talk about roles. Uh, what are the roles of husbands and wives? Number one, men and women are created for different roles. Some of that should be absolutely obvious. Um, no matter how hard we try, men can't have babies. 
It's not going to happen. Right? It's, there's biological, genetic, DNA differences between a man and a woman that have cultural, social, relational consequences. We can't get past this. Even with all of our so-called advances in medical practice, that's just still true. We cannot change that. Men and women were created for different roles. Now, we're going from that, we're going to go into a really heavy theological concept. So turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, and go to the end of the chapter. We're going to pick up in verse 31, Ephesians 5, 31. Now, let me teach you a word. You might know the word. You know at least one version of the word. Put it up here. Okay, what's a prototype? An original. An original. First one. The first. Okay, first one. So if we wanted to say a prototype marriage. What, what might you say that was? Okay. Adam and Eve. Okay. All right. There's another word um, that we don't use a lot. Ectype. Anybody know that one? Somebody say copy? A picture. That's exactly. Copy. copy. So me and Anna are married. Technically, we're an ectype of this prototype, right? There's another word, though. Archetype. What's an archetype? Prime example. I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not hearing what. A prime example? Or like the example of the design? The design, yeah. The, those aren't bad. Design, the, uh, the idea. Well, well, what is that with regard to marriage? And I think we all know God has something to do with the answer. Yeah. That's it. It's Jesus in the church. It's the archetype. It's what really is. And marriage on earth is a temporary ectype of the real marriage in heaven. So see this. So therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. How many times have we read that exact phrase? This is now the third... Tonight, we read Jesus quoted it, Paul has quoted it, and where did we read it originally? Genesis. This is Genesis 2.24. This is a quotation from that. He says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it, that is that quotation, refers to Christ and the church. So, marriage is an example of, of Christ in the church. Not Christ in the church, a good example for marriage. You see the relationship? So the ectype is what we do. This relationship between Jesus and the church, that is the real thing. Because which one's going to last forever? Only this one. This, this fades. This goes away. Even that one, it's already over. Many of aren't married now. How do we know that? They're dead. That marriage does not exist. Only the archetype archetype remains. So fill in those blanks. Let's see. 
The union between Christ and the church is the real marriage. That's the real marriage. Human marriage is a picture. Human marriage is a picture of the one true marriage. So if you think about that, in its most simplistic terms, what is the purpose of marriage? Glorify God. To display the relationship between Jesus and the church. That's what it's for. More than it's for your flourishing. More than it's for your happiness. More than it's for your companionship. More than it's for the production of offspring. It is primarily for representing Christ and the church. That's what marriage exists for. It has other benefits, lots of benefits, but that's number one. That's what we're saying, theologically speaking. This is a Christian worldview. Everybody with me so far? Question. Should? Yes. Correct. It doesn't mean it's a good picture. Like every single human on this planet is an image of God. That's right. Doesn't mean it's a good one. In fact, by definition, it's it's been broken and marred. And so every marriage is not going to perfectly display this. But every marriage either displays it somewhat okay or terrible or horribly, but it's all technically an ectype of the true archetype, no matter what. Even even if it's not real marriage, calling it marriage, we're, we're making a very ugly display of what marriage is supposed to be. It's still technically an ectype, like an anti-ectype maybe, but does that make sense what I'm saying? Okay. All right. So now what we're going to do is from that vantage point, explain the role of a husband and a wife relative to the chief purpose of marriage. All right. We're going to back up to verse 22, stay in Ephesians. This is how Paul draws out all of his application. So to be clear, the primary reasons for the distinctions we're going to talk about are theological, and they are a manifestation of God's glory, not primarily a working out of good pragmatism. A lot of people want to take biblical principles and say they're true because they're pragmatic. Pragmatism has nothing to do with what the Bible's talking about here. It has to do with God's purpose, his teleos, if you want the fancy term, his role, his meaning, his reason for putting it together this way is to display an image. And this is the image he's trying to display through us. So let's read. Uh, Ephesians 5. Start well, actually, let's start with the men. Let's start in 25. Um, Ephesians 5 25. Husbands, who's Paul talking to? Husbands, Husbands. it's vocative, so this is actually a statement of address. He's, he's speaking to husbands when he says this, grammatically speaking. So it's not just saying, Well, husbands ought to, he's saying, Husbands, you do this. That's going to be significant. So he's, he's talking to the men who are married. He says, You guys love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. All right, so here's our big relationship. 
We have Jesus, and then we have the church. And which one is it that Paul is saying the men need to look like? I need to look like Jesus. In what particular way? The cross way. You follow what I'm saying? That's the point. What did Jesus do for the church? He died. Call that sacrifice. And it had purpose. He's trying to sanctify. That should be the husband's model for how he displays this relationship. So the marriage should show us this in the form of the husband acting like Jesus towards whom? Towards the wife. Very straightforward. So husbands, love your wife just like Jesus loved the church. So if you think about that, we can use some biblical imagery here. So if this is Jesus and this is a flock with, say, 100 sheep, and then one of those sheep runs away, what does Jesus do? Goes in. Goes and gets it. Right? That's the principle here. What if the church is being stupid? Um, what does Jesus do? Okay. He corrects it, but he, he actually bears the penalty for it. Uh, he, he absorbs that. He forgives it. He loves it. He labors for it. Now, does Jesus, does he have this relationship with a perfect church? No. So... Does Jesus have, ever have to show patience? Yes. Yes. And so uh, C.S. Lewis said one time, the only way a man can truly do this is if his wife runs off on him all the time. <laughs> you get it, right? That, yeah. That was C.S. Lewis. Yeah. All right. So let's fill in our blanks. So husbands imitate Christ's sacrificial love. Sacrificial love for the church through selfless leadership, provision, and care. It's just the biblical picture. It's theologically motivated. All right, number two, so let's read verse 22. I'll say number two, I just mean second. All right, verse 22 says, Wives, now who's he talking to now? Wives. Is he talking to the husbands? No. No. That's very significant. In fact, if you study this in Scripture, you'll see when he's talking about submission, of wives, he's talking to the wives. That's a big deal, because there's a big difference between talking to the wives and talking to the husbands when it makes a statement. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything um, to their husbands. So who do wives imitate in this scenario? The church. So is it fair then to say that men get to be like Jesus, women only get to be like the church? I don't think we would actually say that. That doesn't, doesn't, doesn't feel right to, to say it that way. Well, what's the church supposed to be doing? The church is supposed to be like Jesus. Here's what I want you to think about this. So the women, I'm going to use this instead. <laughs> I'll change the imagery for you just a little bit. 
change the picture. Let's put Jesus in the center. And Jesus has a relationship with his bride, the church. Right? Does Jesus have a relationship with anyone else? Not that kind of relationship, right? But by definition, Jesus has a relationship with something else. With God, the Father. And after all, what is it that we're imitating about Jesus? His submission to the Father. Here's how I want you to think about it. So men embody what Jesus did by imitating this sacrificial love in marriage. Women embody Jesus by illustrating Jesus' relationship with his Father. Really, both groups are imitating Christ. Different aspects of the same person, the same God, really the same work. Because those is there things Jesus did that were towards his Father and then different things that were towards the church? Yeah, it's actually the same stuff, right? Everything he does for the church is the will of the Father that he was sent to do. So we're really imitating the same God, doing the same things, but towards a different end. So men are called to imitate the sacrificial love, whereas the role of a wife in the marriage is to represent the submissive obedience to the Father. So wives imitate Christ's obedience to the Father through willful submission, upbuilding, and honor. So that's where a lot of the debate comes in. But that's the biblical picture. Um, Obedience to the Father. Obedience to the Father. Any question on that so far? And I, I hope you see it. it that's not me. That's just, just what it says. We're all together. Okay. All right, then last point there. So this is kind of theologically putting that together. Men should, therefore, shepherd their families towards Christ-likeness through example, instruction, discipline, and spiritual oversight. Shepherd, they should shepherd their families through spiritual oversight. Do what? Don't give me some grace. You did, you told me that. That wasn't grace. Very good, I'll take it. I'm going to erase it because there was a crossover. All right, oversight. Shepherding and oversight. Does that sound familiar to you? That's what a pastor is, right? What's the biblical word for shepherd? That's that's a pastor. What's the biblical word for overseeing? Do you know? Almost, it's bishop. But what are those two things called in the Bible? elders. This is why there's a direct parallel between a husband's relationship to his family and the role men or elders play in the church. All married men are elders in a certain sense because they are called to shepherd and oversee the spiritual health of their little flock. Well, that's church. It's a little microcosm of what the church looks like. So The next question we're asking is, 
who can lead the church. So we've already went over when we did congregational polity. Churches are led by elders. Right there. Churches are led by elders. And then let's look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 4. Qualifications for overseers, which is that word bishop, which is one of the ways to talk about elders. Uh, this is one of the qualifications. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he shepherd the church of God? You see the picture there? So what should the shepherd in the church be? He should be doing towards the congregation, the role he has at home. That's the qualification. Be a good shepherd at home, then you shepherd the church. That's the picture. So elders should be great examples of pastoral leadership in their families. All right, now that's the context. So remember, when Paul wrote 1 Timothy, he did not title it 1 Timothy. Who titled it 1 Timothy? We did. Just the church. We titled it First Timothy. Did Paul put chapters? No. Have you ever put chapters in an email? Type in on email. Here's chapter one. Now, some of you may, but you're weird. Okay? Paul did not. Okay? Um, he didn't use bullet points either. Paul used this fancy grammatical structure called run-on sentences. It's just how he did it. <laughs> it's not even technically proper Greek grammar. But uh, there's no paragraphs in what Paul wrote here. There's no verse numbers in what Paul wrote here. Those were added not just a little later, but like a millennia after the fact. That's for our benefit so that I can say turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, and we're not all flipping through Paul's letters and say, wait, 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 wait. where's that added here? Now we can find it. Super convenient for us, not original. I say all of that to say that when Paul wrote this, the previous paragraph... And that paragraph at the beginning of chapter 3 would have literally been a flow of thought from one to the other. A, a smooth transition. When Paul's thinking about one, it causes him to think about the other. Okay? Follow that? So let's go back and read the previous paragraph, which for me, I'm going to say starts in verse 8 of chapter 2. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, relative, some of these things, of course, change over time. What does costly attire look like in our setting? compared to their setting, because to be honest, everyone in the room is wearing costly attire compared to the people Timothy would have been working with. So there's a relative nature to how we apply some of that, and we have to acknowledge that, especially in this topic, but the concept is unchanging. The modesty, the self-control, the but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness Verse 12, what does he mean by quietly with all submissiveness? I think it's verse 12. I do not permit 
a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Speaking of that, here's the qualification for elders. So for me, I read verse 2.12 to be a precursor to chapter 3, 1 through 7. You follow what I'm saying? So when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, I read that to mean I don't permit a woman to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And historically, that is how most Baptist, Presbyterian, Reformed-ish tradition has universally um, interpreted this passage. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, the word quiet there can mean a few different things. It can mean silence. Um, It can also mean um, don't make a stink about stuff. And actually, Paul's already used the word in that form in this chapter. Jump back up to uh, verse 2 of this same chapter. For kings... And all who are in high positions, we're supposed to pray for them, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Well, he doesn't mean they're silent. means don't cause a stink. Don't lead us into war. Don't, well, I'm not going to go there. Don't, don't, don't use Twitter. Don't, don't be boisterous. Lead a quiet life. Um, That's what he's saying here. Don't do that. I don't permit a woman to exercise authority over man, but rather to be quiet. So, last blanks, women are officially excluded by the Bible from the position of elder. Read the verses that follow that statement, verse 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. What does Paul use for his biblical backup? The creation story. Same thing, we we continually see this. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, that she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with self-control, showing different roles, um, I think very clearly here. All right. Now that that has been said, any questions? (laughs) Okay. I appreciate that no women spoke up. (laughs) <laughs> They'll talk to you later. They'll talk to me later. You, you are correct. Yeah. No, you talk to your husband. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm good. I'm going to stop right there. Okay. My daughter has a question. I'm nervous now. <laughs> What does it mean if she does? So technically, the most simple definition would be that's a sinful role reversal. And I would say that is what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. is because Adam was there the whole time. Eve took the lead, and they ate the fruit together with Eve at the head. Scriptures chiefly blame Adam for the whole scenario. Awesome. 
Okay. Well, any, any specific prayer requests before we pray tonight? Then?